0: We actually had two products at that time. We had this Web3 looting game that hadn't left our dev studio, showed it to a couple of seats. And at the same time, we also showed this Web2 to Web3 onboarding pitch, which was effectively where we are now. Using our mobile games, making it more rewarding for the user. And like our games where we A, B test, we did a few pitches and to be honest, not many people were interested in the fully Web3 game, but actually bringing users over, they were like, we want that one. So we doubled down there.
1: That was Hugo Fern. Joining me on this podcast with his co-founder, John Hook from Play Ember. Play Ember is a successful mobile gaming studio delving into Web3. With over 100 million downloads and 5 million monthly active users, they have been rising to notoriety on the Nier ecosystem. Currently on Private Beta with about 40% rollout, they're already the second largest project in Europe with over 150,000 daily transactions. I love this podcast because we go deep past a cliché BS platitudes people say when they talk about gaming and Web3, and we dive into the reality of running a business. Things that really stood out to me. Operational excellence. We get a deep understanding of how John and Hugo engage in product thinking and running a data-driven organization. The introduction from Hugo gives us a glimpse of this. This rapidly leads into game classification, from casual, hypercasual, triple A gaming, lessons from successful game design, gamification, and more. We also touch on their vision and plans to grow the Nier ecosystem. I didn't know going into this podcast that there is some tension and animosity between some of the key players in the Nier ecosystem and Play Ember. So I really hope that this podcast paints a better picture on who they are, what they're doing, and where they are going. Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Hugo and John. Enjoy! Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I've got with me John and Hugo, co-founders at Play Ember. Welcome, friends. Hey.
2: Hey, AVB. Great to be here.
1: I am so happy to finally have you both.
2: Yeah. It's very rare that we're both available at the same time, but we're pumped pumped to do it. And let's just dive in. There's a lot to talk about.
1: (laughs) The universe has been conspiring to have us all in the same call. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember, or even if you know, but I met a couple of your engineers and maybe even you guys at Neocon last year. And I was so excited when I learned about Play Ember that I actually had one of your engineers on the podcast booth and uh, anyway, a series of things happened, including him not being able to disclose or not knowing a few things, especially on the business side. But also like I lost a hard drive from the podcast booth. Like I left it at Airbnb in New York. It, it took a long time and in the end the podcast never came out, but I'm happy that we waited because the evolution of Play Amber in that time is quite remarkable. Why don't you start telling us a little bit about yourselves and we can dive in.
2: Sure. I'm John, one of the co-founders along with Hugo. My, my background honestly is, a ra- is random. I actually studied law. I'm definitely the non-technical co-founder here, but very good with words and litigation. I actually then fell into advertising, so more on the ad monetization side of gaming. My first startup was when there was not a lot in mobile bar like SMS or Crazy Frog like ringtones. Built one of the earliest mobile ad networks that we then sold to a US software company listed on the NASDAQ that wanted a monetization layer for all their enterprise applications. And they did stuff from WWE to like US airports it was fascinating. Then ran Ag Collie in Europe, one of the biggest video SDKs for gaming. And then through that, just met loads of game developers and studios, and then crossed over to the light side, e.g. actually making and publishing games. It was Oma Games in Paris for a couple of years, and then I was running BoomBit's publishing division. Real nice mix of games, anything from like RPG, casual, and very luckily for me, that's where I met Hugo and managed to convince him up against some pretty tough competition to come create this new company at the time with BoomBit. And luckily, Hugo decided to partner with us, and then for me, I then did a bit of an internal transfer, really, from running Boombit publishing division to go join forces with Hugo. And that's where Play Ember, the sort of mobile game studio arrived at. And then I'll let Hugo introduce himself and then we'll talk about the Web3 side of Play Ember and the story there, because I think that's really fun. Yeah.
0: Hi guys. Thanks for having us on. I'm Hugh, co-founder of Play Ember as well, but certainly more on the game dev side and game design side. Over the past, I don't know, I always say three, four years, but looking back it's 10 years, been running, being a game studio lead at kind of casual mobile game studios. So it started one off brick wall marketing and our our first game was actually done with my cousin. We were like, yeah, let's give it a go. And it was all about just cutting stuff perfectly in half. That's all it was. So like random shapes and you just cut and it was called 50-50. And before that, we were doing websites. But this game really kicked off. We were like, oh, okay, we can do something here.
1: Is this a classic venture where your cousin was like 12 years old (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, we were a bit old. We were probably too old to, to be, yeah, giving it a go, right. but we're like, ah, oh, no, we're going to do it anyway. And that was just after university. So maybe like 21, but that seemed to go really well. And that was just as kind of casual mobile games started to boom. So we worked with lots of big publishers like Voodoo and Homer and App Club and everyone like that. And then yeah, eventually ended up with Playmber. It's really fun job, to be honest. It's all about really quick iterations. You come up with game idea on a Monday. The whole thing is, right, let's get a game out within a fortnight, just to see those really early initial stats. And then from there, you can see if it's going to be a winner or not, and then build upon it.
1: That's awesome. And I'm really curious because, to be perfectly honest, I've never been much into gaming. I think I had a PlayStation 1, 2, and 3 when I was growing up. And the joke is that I may or may not have had anger management issues. (laughs) And I smashed a few controls and may have even thrown the console at someone. That didn't last long. Definitely 14, 15 was the end of my gaming saga. And I may have missed a boat. I could have been a proficient game developer. So I'm curious, you both have, I don't know how many years and how many companies of combined experience. What was your, like, personal background before going into gaming. Did you play games growing up? Are there any profiles or characteristics that make you more suitable or better at designing
0: games? I think my one's a bit of a weird background for game design. I I did the marketing business studies at university and then I fell into it. I was, part of my job was going out and getting website developers for clients. And one day I was like, oh, I reckon I could do this. I was like, I'm chucking it in and I'm going to learn it. And Eventually, did, but it was a lot tougher (laughs) than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, that's how I started. And I think a real, weirdly, a benefit that we found because our target audience aren't inverted commas like proper gamers. They are more like Gen Z. These are the kind of games you'd play on the metro or the bus. So, actually, me not really being a massive gamer, I think, helps because of the kind of the usual thing game designers or game developers do is make stuff too complicated or complex that I know concentrates it down to a bit more of a niche, whereas ours are like very mass market. Yeah. I think weirdly not being hugely into games is a
2: benefit to where we are in the market. Yeah. I was, I was definitely not a hardcore gamer like auto battle RPG games, but I grew up playing like N64, like grew up on anything. Mario loved like Command and Conquer was like one of the earliest like strategy PC games that I loved. But yeah, same with Hugo. I think my path in after I figured out I didn't want to be a lawyer, although I love suits. Now watching suits, I was like, oh, I could have suits made like being a lawyer fun. But I think I fell into advertising. That's what I loved more is just understanding how people think. And I think Hugo's point is really key. Like, our audience are like mass market consumers, really. They're definitely not like hardcore gamers. If you think about like web three games, that's not our audience. And to engage with them, it's just understanding how they think and really where they spend time. is pop culture, like it's music, it's entertainment, it's fashion, it's sports. So for me, early on, more on the advertising side, working for amazing brands like, like Sony, like Dell, like Visit Britain, like Tourist Board. Did a lot of stuff actually with the Australian Tourist Board, with like Aldi, like Volkswagen Group. The key thing there is all about understanding how people think. You're trying to sell them a product or service and come up with amazing content and create some sort of emotional connection. And the starting point is not your product, it's them. For the games that we make now, that was a really good grounding because often a lot of the content in our games is linked to something happening in the world. So when Squid Games blew up on Netflix, there were like 20 games in the top hundred on Google play, all about Squid Games, that's a perfect example, or now TikTok, if something's gone viral on TikTok, you've probably got a chance of finding games with that mechanic about what's happening on TikTok. The crate stacking trend, for example, or like the ice bucket challenge. These things find themselves into games because the way- so they're Showing someone... your age there. Yeah. they around, around five years ago. Yeah. they just pop culture. Well, that's why we've got our content, because they live and breathe yeah. TikTok. I, have yeah, true. I dive into TikTok and I don't even know what I'm looking at half the time.
1: I embarrassed myself over the weekend because I told a friend- without really knowing what I was saying, yeah. but I was going to do some research. At least I prefaced it correctly. I didn't know, I was... I'd was do some research in the future around NPC streamers. And I thought that what that referred to was cloning my own voice and having a digital version of myself so I can create more content more quickly. And my friend was like, oh yeah, good on you, good luck. And then I looked at actual NPC streamers and I was like, this is the end of humanity.
0: Yeah, crazy. This
1: is not good. I reckon I'd be good at it because you got to be slightly psychotic to do it, but it's not my number one aim in life now. That's really interesting because I had heard the term before, casual gamers. I'm wondering like, if you could expand a little bit more on that distinction between, I guess, a full feature game, I don't know, like a Diablo or something like that, and more like the casual gamers. I know that you've already touched a little bit on it around the setting where they play in
0: the bus. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, I think we get in our own little bubble a bit, say these things we're like, oh, actually, yeah, no one knows. So it usually they refer to actually the game genre. So there's hyper casual, which is right at one end of the spectrum. And then if you took the other end of the spectrum, it would be like a League of Legends, Call of Duty, FIFA, kind of these AAA games. And then casual is like a step up from hyper casual. And they're usually mobile games. A really good casual game would be Candy Crush and the hyper-casual games are more kind of those well, ones where you can jump on trends quickly, make a game quickly, but usually the lifetime of that game is quite short. So if you looked at our download graph for a hyper-casual game, there'd be a big spike where we get lots of downloads and it goes into the top charts, but then slowly it starts to tail off, whereas a casual game is a bit more sustained. And it can scale a lot, but it costs more money to get a download, but people stick around for longer. So that's
2: usually a more sustainable approach. I think the key link to web three is generally hyper casual games. People don't put money in. They're funded by ads and they're very happy watching ads. And again, you're in this bubble where people think, oh, I hate ads. You talk about billions of dollars delivered. To the gaming ecosystem through ads that people are totally fine watching because that's how it works Like kindergarten it's i'm not going to go and even spend a dollar on a game i I, that right got it versus when you go to casual games you have a higher percentage of people that put money in through in-app purchases because they've gone from kindergarten to high school and they're like hey i really like this game i'm now happy to put money into this game and still watch ads but i might even pay money to remove ads so i think that's another reason why casual games are really interesting because it's more of the sort of behavior of putting money in and then when you go up to that when you look at most web 3 games that's why at the moment the sort of general feeling is that's a good fit because that audience are very used to putting lots of money into games buying skins and weapons that's why though early on when you see some of the leaders in web 3 gamings it's that core behavior player behavior that actually fits well with web 3 before you get into it, down the rabbit hole of Ownership and NFTs and trading is the basic concept that they already are used to paying for stuff in a game versus some of our players at top of funnel that their contribution to what we do is through obviously playing the game and they're very happy being monetized.
1: There are some words here that are like betraying or they're playing games in my mind, no pun intended, because I would assume that a casual game is easier to make. If you give me a framework, I can probably come up with a casual game. But Play Amber has 100 million downloads and 5 million daily active users. So, what do you guys know that others don't? Or what do you think makes that difference around the success that Play Amber has been able to amass up until now? And I guess, how are you applying those lessons to Web3?
2: I think what people, if you've not worked at Unlimited Gaming, if anyone could do it, everyone would be doing it. That classic case of NFT trading, if it was that easy to make millions, we'd all do it. So th- there is a lot of data and hard work and failure that goes into making a game. Just to be honest, you, we fail way more than we succeed. And from a business perspective, it's about doing as much as we can to de-risk that upfront cost because making games is really expensive. So just to give you an idea, developing a casual game like Candy Crush versus the games that we make would take you at least an extra year and probably 10 to 20x the capital costs with no guarantee of return. For argument's sake, we're talking about $20, $30,000 for a hyper-casual game versus, I don't know, half a million dollars plus just to develop a game with no chances of success here. So the way that we do it is you don't actually make a game to start with. You make like a piece of ad creative that's got a sort of an idea for a game in it, maybe a character, maybe some environments and a very light bit of game mechanic. And we'll put that on ad networks, on Facebook, on TikTok. And we're looking to see if people like it. So what do I mean by people like it? Of course, if people view it, but if, the, if they click on it, that's really interesting. And then we have some internal calculations that turn that click-through rate into a proxy for an acquisition cost. And we have some very clear frameworks for what's good and what's not good. But let's say it's good. The next step would be very quickly to create maybe, let's say 10 levels and a really basic version of a game that's in the app store. And then we run that same test again and we look at marketability of the game. But we're also now looking at, okay, even though it's, say it's 10, 15 level, how long are, do they just eat up those 10, 15 levels really quickly? And that's usually a good sign that we've got people playing. And then we may even put a rewarded video in there because we also want to see, okay, will they watch this game? And is it good enough that they will even watch some ads to keep playing? So then it becomes about the balance of two numbers for us. It's classic marketing, cost of acquisition. Versus the AVB, what's the cost of acquiring AVB versus what is the LTV, the long term value, or another acronym, average revenue per daily active user, ARP What is the ARP of AVB? So those are the two levers that we are always looking at. If the game is terrible, we kill it. Why spend more capital costs and development time? We just kill it. We obviously take some learnings from it if we can and we move on to the next one. So behind the scenes is this constant engine and over time, you're building up data signals and learnings about what's working and what's not working, both at a trend level, but also a game mechanic level. Because in casual games, you've got eight, nine different categories of casual games, a skill in their own right. And even if you take Hugo's example of Candy Crush, so Match 3, Match 3 as a mechanic is constantly evolving. So you need to be an expert at Match 3. That's how we try and give ourselves the best chance of success. I think that's what people underestimate about gaming is very data-led. It is very, it's very frustrating because you do, you do fail more than you win. Otherwise we'd be publishing every single game. That's a little bit on the sort of business model and how it works.
1: I can start to see where some of the tension, some of the rift would come between uh, something like a Play Amber and uh, an indie gamer or let me pose it as a question. Are games art, or can it be commoditized? Can it be both? And is play amber more on the commodity side? Have yeah. you ever been attacked by people who see their games as their art and maybe they get married oh. to them and they don't realize that nobody wants to play that shit?
0: yeah, yeah. I, I think I think they can be both, yeah, more from like the game design side. Sometimes it's a little bit crushing where. I know you make a level look really nice. Well, like you make the UI look like spot on and you're like, oh, that is such an improvement. But then as John said, like, you need to go back to the data. You do like A-B testing. So it is this nice, beautiful, like looking game with like really nice renders and shadowing and everything versus the bit basic one and the basic one wins. And you're just like, oh, okay, <laughs> but you kind of need to go for that one. Yeah, yeah, but we are certainly more on the monetization side, we're data led. So if anything did look super, super nice, but actually the CPI, so cost per install, when we tried to get a download shot up, then we would go for the one that gets a download for cheaper. And that does happen quite a lot where we make something that really realistic and actually now you're targeting a, a higher user that you need to pay more for.
2: I'm going to take a different answer and read between the lines on AVB's question here. So I think one of the things that you're asking about is the commercial reality of what we're doing. We're running a business. We have a team to pay. We've got bills to pay. If life was all about just doing what you want and getting paid for it, give me that job right now. Where do I find that? We have a business to run. So a lot of our team, they love making the games we make. They go home and they're making Steam games. They're making Roblox games. So let's, I wouldn't even call them indie, but I think. Yeah, that, that's a the balance. They get paid from us that then enables them to do their passion project on the side, knowing that it's not going to make loads, but it scratches that itch. But also on the flip side, I'm at Gamescom next week, one of the biggest gaming events on the planet. And I've got friends that are indie gamers and very successful at what they do. And there are funds that specifically invest in indie games. So I think this is my point about this word that I really don't like, ecosystem gaming there are so many different types of games for different audiences there's no right there's no wrong and just like friends that make indie games there's a business model to that you can do it as a hobbyist and your motivation is like for the art and you just want to put something out into the world that you love and you don't need to make money because you have a day job versus those that like us we consider it as a form of art as a form of pop culture but we do need it to make money otherwise we can't eat and pay our pay our team so often If I get back to your question, where the conflict comes from is actually, it's about money. That's really, if you get to the root of where these comments come from, it's really about money. I'm not going to sit here and say, and it's not my job to defend the model. It's a billion dollar model around advertising and monetizing games. I didn't invent that. So don't hate on me for that. There's some other billionaires that are on yachts somewhere. Go hate on them. But that's right now the way that the web two industry works and yes, you, Of course, we get the odd comment in the app store from people that there's too many ads, but that's nothing new. But we're very fortunate that that sustained the industry for years and got us to where we are in terms of our entry point for Web3. So we wouldn't be there without our millions of players that chose to download our game, play them and contribute through ads to give us this opportunity now to attack what Web3 and what blockchain can do for gaming.
1: Interestingly enough, you gave us a glimpse into something that I wasn't really aware of and I wasn't really referring to. I guess I was coming a little bit more niche around tensions, say, even within the new ecosystem. Like, for instance, gaming as a very broad category and everyone in Web3 wants to capture gaming, I can see how if I've been working on a game for two years and it's, whatever, a Web3 game and it's got 10,000 users, I would be compared with a Play Ember. Very different category of games, but because in the span of a month, you have 150,000 users and you're still in private beta, you're the champion. I I think that's a little bit more where the tension comes in. I've been trying to think of some analogies could be something like, Hey, I am writing a novel and somebody's writing whatever, listicles, or boss feed quests, or I'm a chef and I spend four hours in a meal and somebody sells hot dogs at a stadium. It's just very different products that the word gaming may be used interchangeably for them. And it's really good to get to understand how different they are. And what makes me wonder is, first, has that data-driven approach, does it come naturally to you guys? Or is that something that you learned from all the previous experiences and you just do because it's a best practice and that's how you run a business? And I guess the second one is, how much of that data-driven approach do you think is needed? at an ecosystem level, at something like near, if we're dispersing money from a foundation, from a grant, from whatever, it's funny because you actually said the literal word passion projects. Mm-hmm. The DAOs were initially set up for passion projects and we realized very quickly, we were paying people to do not much within their bubble of comfort and what they enjoyed and their return was not there. So yeah, I'm wondering what the right balance is between running the entire ecosystem, like a very efficient business, but also having some sort of KPIs and some sort of data to know whether we're moving towards the desired destination. Do
2: you want to take the first one, Hugo? I'll take the second one. Yeah, sure.
0: So I wouldn't say it actually came naturally to me, the data-driven stuff because it's more from the design side, but yeah, we certainly got used to it quickly and as you do these A-B tests, those kind of minimal gains. So when you, you improve by a few percent and then they really do start to snowball. Yeah, I'd say you, you probably start to learn or you, you get a good eye for what is going to work and what isn't. But yeah, I think you were spot on earlier as well, if you be just about, okay, it's all gaming, but they are, they're hugely different. We're more mass market Gen Z and our cost or our revenue per user will be a hell of a lot lower than these kind of 10,000 really AAA web three games where Okay. The LTV for one single player is going to be way, way higher.
2: I'll pass on to you, John, for the second bit. So the second bit, I feel is like a two hour podcast in its own right here. But it's a great question. But from our perspective, and we work really closely with the NIR foundation and have since the start on gaming, because it's what we're really passionate about. You've already led us on this path already. There isn't one gamer. There isn't this one size fits all approach. I think there's a lot of similarities to gaming, but it almost, it's like running a VC because you have a thesis a lot of research will have gone into, both at the deep kind of tech layer about what you're building and where you can cut through, but also now at the application layer. So how can we then bring that infrastructure to market and where do we believe we can compete in the current market to at least keep the lights on? Obviously, a slightly different mindset. Web2 VC, you've got to return certain multiples to your LPs. 10x probably is not even interesting. We're talking about 20, 30, 40, 50x, whereas in the spec of Web3, should be making money the goal is to build a sustainable ecosystem but to build a sustainable ecosystem you still need i've said it three times sustainable to be sustainable you need a balance between money out and money in I can crazy only assume, concept yeah crazy concept it's wild but, but a lot of people <laughs> in Web3 still for whatever reason think that's not the case so i could only assume given the caliber of some of the people at the foundation that this data-led exercise has gone through mapping out and it's not the same When we joined over a year and a half ago, even to like latest calls we've had, we're trying to map out really where they believe that sustainability can come from in different verticals building on the near infrastructure. And it remains to be data-led. So rightly or wrongly, based on the foundations, they have KPIs that they track every day, every week to determine the success of that capital deployment. From our perspective, in our part of the ecosystem, because this doesn't cover the whole ecosystem, because the near ecosystem is... Many different parts of it, but from a foundation perspective, they are very data led and have very clear KPIs that they are, that they are looking to hit. What I would say, where I think at times a foundation need offending is if anyone thinks they're going to have a hundred percent hit rate, it is just crazy. Just the same with VCs. You have to accept that the vast majority of what you're backing, even though it fits your thesis, you're effectively backing a pre-seed startup. So the chances of failure are very high. But. It's that maybe one, 2%, and the only thing we can compare it to really is the sort of Web2 VC accelerator model, but that's how you get sustainability because if you believe in this core thesis in a vertical and you have the capital to back enough and you provide them an operating ecosystem and support network to grow, that's the hope that enough start making it through to bring people in, to bring revenue in, to sustain it, and off we go. So I, it's a bit of a long answer, but I think it's really important to have some context to these conversations.
1: I think you're spot on. And by the way, I don't know if you guys are long term listeners of the podcast. I also studied law, two against one. I'm sorry, Hugo. To be not even devil's advocate, more like a, like an armchair commentator, to me, looking from the outside is very interesting to look at a project level. You guys are going to stay alive, you're a business. So you do what it takes data driven, business, ads, simple games, whatever. Gen Z's, it's not for your grandma. Very pragmatic, but at an ecosystem level, the new foundation, its mandate is to grow the new ecosystem, but implicitly, because we're so early, the mandate is also to literally keep it alive. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it is a secret, like anyone paying attention over the last 12 months would realize that the new foundation was very smart because before Marieke in the Eric era, Eric was too data-driven, too early. We were too obsessed with the number of wallets and the number of transactions when there was nothing to do on-chain. Marique and her team, and I actually respect the foundation these days, I think they've improved a lot, they must have figured out, look, we need to have a lot of users, but they need to be doing something on-chain. And they basically identified all the low-hanging fruit. Can people physically move? Yes, get Sweatcoin. 10 million people walking. Can people play casual games? Yes, fucking 100 million people get them in. Most of the partnership deals are around, at least in the web 2.5 category, existing companies, a lot of loyalty, a lot of customer rewards, simple gamification that web three, it's almost like an invisible layer on top. And uh, I think that the expectation, or maybe where there may be a gap with the rest of the ecosystem, let's call them basement hackers, is in your foundation at some point, or as an ecosystem... Are we going to shift the gears towards supporting new products being built, like something from scratch? It's fantastic. You guys are contributing whatever, hundreds of thousands of transactions and we've got a lot of users, but what comes next? Th- th- does that timeline make sense to you guys?
2: Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, again, it's totally fair. And that's the thing. It's it, This is where gaming is like Web3. There isn't this one Web3 user. There are some people that have been in Web3 as long as Ilya since the dawn of Bitcoin. And... Their, what their expectation is of Web3 and the projects they're looking for are definitely not play Ember. So just like gaming, people that play RPG games that have been gaming all their life are not going to play our games. But our job in the gaming ecosystem is to keep bringing in new gamers and teach them about this idea of putting money in. So when we saw Web3 and we saw everyone talking about, oh, we're going to onboard a billion, forget gamers, a billion consumers. Me and Hugo were like, where's that coming from? We don't see anything that us as, let's call us crypto newbies where's our entry point? We have this slide on our investor deck that talked about that journey because a lot of investors are Web3 deGens and the word degen is misleading, but you get my point. They've been in a long time and you get in your degen bubble and that's great. But if you really want to grow this ecosystem, you have to accept the entry point into crypto is not going to be the same experience you had because again, like we we sometimes internally on our games call it like your Nan test. It's not like we're trying to onboard NANDs into Web3, but there's got to be that that entry point coming back to what we started that people can understand and they don't find scary or intimidating. So I think that's where a lot of the conflict comes from. And Hugo and I felt this when we were raising money, even now in the ecosystem, that we're just not Web3 enough. But what you're going to start seeing for us from us will look a bit more like Web3, but it's our job to take people from a crypto newbie to like, we call them crypto curious. That's our job. And then when we get them to crypto curious, we would love people to hand them off to to go do all this Dijon stuff. Right now, we, you, when you play one of our games, we ask you to create an account. We don't call it a wallet because we did a lot of testing. If you call it a wallet, people think you're trying to scam them. So that, was a, that doesn't work. So creatively, we tested because we want to onboard as many people as possible. So if we use words like token or wallet, big no-no. People just, you see the numbers, it goes like this. So we have the near wallet behind the scenes. The other thing we're doing that actually for us is very Web3 and gaming, but isn't Web3 enough for everyone else, is actually other use cases of blockchain technology beyond trading. So actually using blockchain to verify and validate all of the activities in a game. That's actually a really interesting use case of blockchain technology. Okay, it might not be trading, but for us, it's a genuine use case of blockchain tech. But what's coming next is because we're building a company. We can't do all this shit at once, despite everyone wants it. We have to take a... Slow approach to make sure we're still in business and we can then. Our goal is to hit the seed round and to hit the seed round, we have KPIs that we need to hit. But we will start introducing our version of NFTs and digital collectibles all or more sort of Web3, but it's more about for our players understanding the value and need for these things rather than just shoving Web3 in because that doesn't work. So it's, I don't know if it's Web 2.5, I don't like all these words, but we're just trying to design a game system that makes sense to our players that makes it more fun than the existing games that they play so nfts are going to be the next step and then to your final point we'll probably make an announcement in q4 but we are looking at this ecosystem and where we are trying to support near is we don't really see an ecosystem we see a whole different silo of projects and we have been trying to work with lots of different projects so q2 transparency report you can see all the numbers. There were like 19 partnerships in loyalty and rewards in Q1 and Q2, like 18 in infrastructure. That, to my earlier point, is great because the near foundation, like you said, like now Marique's here, I love this attitude of almost that we just need to get shit done and we just need to try and find these winners in that category. The flip side of that is you need to design an operating structure for all these companies to work together, not compete together. So, one of our challenges that we've been working with the foundation on is what well, we're bringing users on. It's been really hard to partner with projects to move players on and then compound the value of that new user in the near ecosystem. And that's where there is massive upside for near if we can crack this as an ecosystem. But at the moment, I don't see anyone obsessing over the operational structure of how these projects can work together, even before you get onto. How you fund them, who controls the funding governance, like operationally, how can this ecosystem benefit everyone and move people on this journey? So that's where we've really, from our side, where we really want to contribute more heavily in phase two of the project is to start developing our own ecosystem. And we'll announce one is close to signing and we're working on the second one but to work really closely now with these amazing near grassroots project hackers that can build incredible tech that is more web three and bring them into our ecosystem to give them the help that we can contribute, which is more, not just users go to market and development of the project in this gamification ecosystem. I think very long answer to your question. That's really where right now we're really honest about where we are. And we know it's not web three enough for everyone else, but We're not competing with web three projects. We want to bring these new users in, but we've hit a problem and we've had to slow down that from a game perspective, it's like launching a game and not having a finished game, you're wasting money. And that's what we realized is we can create even more value for the near ecosystem if we slow down, dive deep into all the different projects and try and find all these ecosystem partners now to really start moving people around and make the gaming experience more fun rather than just turning on the tap and printing wallets to be the poster child because we're not here to be a poster child. We're here to help build the near ecosystem and we want to do that. So if anyone's listening and you're building something really cool in data analytics, in loyalty, CRM, ticketing, like even if you're building a game, then just come and talk to us but with a really open mind about how we can work together. Look, if you have the
1: numbers, if you wanna be the poster child, that's fine. I'll take a hoodie like Hugo's and a t-shirt like yours. (laughs) And they can plaster me on every wall, every poster. That, 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 that's super interesting. Look, there is something, it's a top build to swallow. By definition, crypto natives are either on the spectrum, ADHD, I call it engineering Olympics. The problem that is fun to solve is a very technical problem, and this is why in my eyes most ethereum layers twos threes fours layer zeros and all the things around it it's like solving a sudoku a sudoku isn't doing shit in the real world it's just fun to solve yep and i am one well known for missing my train stops because i am so immersed in the sudoku and cracking the numbers and i think i've lost half my eyesight from playing this on my phone so i think that when you say that play amber is not technical enough It's funny that I keep making these analogies with project and like higher level ecosystem, my experience is that near as an ecosystem, as a blockchain protocol, we've actually faced the same criticism. Maybe now it's starting to make more sense, but earlier on the user experience was so smooth, people didn't feel like they were doing blockchain and people just stayed doing their digging shit, nine wallets in and bridges and whatever. It's But if I could just go in and click four clicks and do what I was meant to do, am I really doing crypto? So it's, a, it's almost like change management. We could either reimagine and create a new understanding of what crypto is for the people that have already been damaged hmm. by the existing friction. Or we literally just bring a ton of new users to a new paradigm or a new standard of what user experience should be. Because that's my near thesis. And I'm interested because I think you guys do some work in Solana as well. My thesis has always been, if you get a user that is brand new and they experience smooth user experience in near and low transaction costs and speed, that makes it much harder to then go to another ecosystem and start adding extra friction. I don't know. Do you guys pay much attention to that at a slightly macro level?
0: Certainly the ease of onboarding and the wallet and everything like that. But I'm not sure when we made the decision probably 12, 14 months ago to go with near that was the key reason we were just like, all this kind of crypto is going to scare our users off. But then we were like, actually, okay, this near it, it's like logging into Goop. So yeah, I found that perfect for us. But yeah, I completely get your point that sometimes you don't feel like a, a D gen. And if you did, you'd probably want to, say, God Salada and buy some NFTs, but
2: that's great because if you want near crash, if you want that more Dijon gambling experience or soul casino, it's there for you. We're not, we're not trying to stop anyone doing that. But I thought the idea of web three is anyone can come in and have their own vision, do whatever they want. We're not going to get there. If you have this constant conflict between like, I've been here for ages, this is what web three is and it has to be built this way. We're not, we're not trying to challenge that. All we're saying is we've not been here since like early, like mid. 2012, 2013, we've not been there that long. You know, Hugh and I have been into crypto since probably like 2018, not as Playmber, but just on a personal level. And we never would claim to be an expert. But I think the thing that we've always learned, and my first startup was just incredibly lucky to be around like seasoned tech entrepreneurs. We're talking like AMD, Exis, Nortel. It doesn't even exist anymore, like building. And the thing they drummed into me is this, best tech doesn't win. And they could just list off loads of examples of this. If you can't get users and you don't ever go to market and they loads of examples where the best tech had them won, but they figured out the growth tech. That's the role that we can play. We don't, in the same in gaming, we don't have to compete with Nexon or Supercell. We're never going to have that level of like live ops and technical capability. And it'll be suicide to compete with those companies as play Amber. But in the area we're in, where it is all about, Really nailing UI, UX, onboarding, FTUE, we say the whole time, first-time user experience. That's what's key to us remaining to be competitive, is knowing how to onboard people. And we even don't even think about our product as games. Mm-hmm. That content that we're making at times, borderline, is it even a game? So I think that's, that's something really important to think about here. And there are lots of healthy discussions we always have at events, roundtables about this. But at times, that thing I find a bit sad about Web3 is that some of the people that have been here a long time, if you don't fit their mold, you're very much made to feel like not one of them. And for me, that's a problem because I thought one of the key tenets of Web3 and decentralization is about participation from anyone, anywhere, regardless of how long you've been in crypto, where you come from, whether you're doxed or not docs. Everyone should be freely able to contribute. And I think it's really important that doesn't really get lost. Because that's, what, that's one of my annoyances when I hear this word ecosystem. And I would like to believe that's one of the core tenants of building a sustainable ecosystem, taking the money away, is just respect for human beings. But unfortunately, as soon as you put money into the situation, I think that's then where these, some of these tensions start to, to come from.
1: Maybe. Although usually the ecosystem is essentialized enough where, to be honest, if you guys kill it, I'm a bag holder. There's a way where we can all win, perhaps to different extents. I think it's ego. Up until very recently, I'd say up until like right now, in most ecosystems, you become an OD and you rise in the importance ladder by what you stand for, by your vision, by your values. You're always building towards something. And if Nier says, hey, fuck it, you don't have to worry about decentralized sequencers and whatnot, they give you all the tools. And they say, now the onus is on you. To create a product, you're back to square zero. You're literally no one. It's like migrating to a new country after you've got a PhD in something in a whatever Russian, and then you're migrating to a Spanish speaking country that no one cares where you come from. That's attention. There are OGs that are having a hard time reconciling the fact that they were there since day one. They've been net promoters, they've been whatever contributing to GitHubs. And there are people, not to say YouTube, in general, and there should be more people that are completely foreign to the ecosystem at that diehard level, like my mom was Satoshi kind of thing. And they're going to come in, they're going to build great products. They're not going to show up to the crypto raves. They're not going to be hanging out on on, on the Telegram, saying GM, whatever, but they're going to be big drivers for growth. And I guess we're going to have a new category of people that we look up to. It's more operational. Is that the corporatization of web three, I don't know, corporate sounds dirty. It's got a bad tone to it, but clearly we need to have more frameworks that are repeatable and consistent. Yeah. I I never thought about the tension before, by the way. So thanks for helping me tease it out.
2: what you're describing is that we agree that's the thing. It comes back to this word ecosystem. There needs to be a place, an entry point for everyone and you've know, you know, got like Horizon and the Accelerator, now got obviously the discussions around NDC, you've got the Foundation, you've got projects like Aurora and Mintbase with their own ecosystems. So you've got many different sort of homes or avenues that people can contribute to and feel at home to. But this is where it gets like Web2, you stick to where you feel most comfortable. So the the Foundation have been like huge supporters of us, but I think it would be wrong to say that that they're basically hand-holding us and directing us, but we are, there's some of the stuff I'm saying, we're very open with them, we're trying to figure out, but we've tried to join some other channels and say, GM, and we just get shouted down. So we don't join, we don't go in those channels anymore because they're like it's like doing an escape room and open the door. Oh, that's not our room. Okay. Try and make friends and you realize very quickly that, okay, it's just, it's just not going to work for a, a variety of reasons. I understand that and it's a bit disappointing. Because again, it's not about right or wrong. So that's why we're trying to now build our own ecosystem, because we found some very technical people in this ecosystem that this isn't about them. They want to continue contributing to the ecosystem and their frustration is more the sort of go-to-market lack of users coming in and someone that then, to my earlier point, knows how to operationalize that within their business. So luckily there are some really incredible builders where I don't think it is about them at all. I think it is about near, and they want to grow near. And are yeah, trying to enter conversations with us and hopefully everyone else within within near. I understand your point about ego because I mean I think that's just a human nature thing.
1: There's actually three categories because when I think about the top builders, Metapol, K Pal, none of those founders are in chats every day saying GM. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would question their knowledge or their commitment to near, but there needs to be. You obviously need the space and the time to do real work. Yeah. I started that line of thinking around identity. I often look at the indie hackers movement. I love it. Been listening to the podcast for years. I joined the platform ages ago, Product Hunt. There is a very different identity of the person that calls themselves an indie hacker. It's a very small business. They're very self-mastery, constant improvement, very collaborative. It's a tribe that attracts like-minded people. And once you're there, even if half these people are literally starving to death, it's it's something that you want to be there. Maybe you can think of the Bay Area. You're literally walking in shit, avoiding needles falling from the sky. But there's something that draws people there. There's a very strong sense of identity and a very particular type of founders that go there. I've heard that Paris with AI. Like, There's many different cities. Are you guys based in London? Yeah. Nice. So I, I'm sure that you can see that you know, how a an ecosystem in this, I guess, physical, the people that surround you sense make a difference. And I'm going to keep saying it until we manifest it into reality. To me, Nier is a builder's blockchain, but I come at it from the sense that, hey, we've got the technology. We're just going to get people in to build with it. I'm not entirely sure if that is the identity that we're projecting now. So I'm really curious both how you perceive it, or I guess now that you've given us the alpha, thank you. How do you think about that sense of identity or for the ecosystem that you want to build? What would be some of those core tenants? Who would be a great fit and they'd be welcome to great value? And who may be better off doing things in the GM groups that were not as friendly to you guys? Sorry to hear that.
2: Is your question more about like marketing, messaging wise, what do we think near should be saying more of to attract like these Mass onboarding builders. What was the?
1: Yeah, I guess that implied in my question would be that we don't really have a sense of identity.
2: Got it. And
1: okay. that is probably one of the reasons why it makes sense for you guys to create your own ecosystem and have some initiatives that you have more control of, or you can shape in certain ways that may be more aligned with the way that Play Ember does things, which may not yeah. be the same for everyone. Yeah.
2: Again, I think it comes back to who, who near want to onboard. I think there's, there's very, it was in the last transparency report, but it's very light at the moment. This web two onboarding messages, the main two external messages around the boss and now NDC. So if you think about those two messages and who they're attracting, it's not these, let's call them web two builders. They're not going to see that and be like, oh, near the the chain for me. They're going to go to other chains where they're seeing logos or brands that they know exactly who that is. If I'm the CFO of a Fortune 500 company, it's about risk management. I'm looking at two decks. This one's got lots of companies that I know are on there. I can sell that to my board and to shareholders in terms of risk before you get into big discussions about whose tech is better. So I think for us, I think this sort of web two onboarding message has got a little bit lost at the moment. I don't really see that anymore. Okay. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that the boss or decentralized front ends on the future but for me right now if this is really a battle for market share not for the long term but in the short term to be sustainable at a time where everyone is being open about what's in a treasury we're looking at some people got as low as 12 months but let's say 24 to 36 months of capital reserves there's got to be a real balance and that's where what you're getting at avp between okay we need to keep building from the grassroots and provide a framework and structure for that to continue to happen because that's where this is has always been and it's where it will be and will be there long term and i've got no doubt some more incredible businesses are going to come from that but in the short term where there is a bit of a land grab and you're hearing stories around emergency funding rounds from protocols but if you're going to raise money you can have a deck about all these Potential use case is all you want, but if you're a VC right now in this climate, you're only going to back people where they've actually proven that they could execute on board projects and move them through that like capital ecosystem. For us, this isn't about web two versus web three. I think this is more about survival and preservation of, um, of the ecosystem. And if you're asking me how we do that we need to go back to, okay, you know, really right now, what is our main goal and what is our immediate focus and what is the marketing message that's going to be mapped to bringing on and convincing those projects to to pick near? Because I think we all agree that the tech is really great. So let's rule out that there's a tech problem here. I think it's more of a, yeah, a marketing go-to-market challenge that we're struggling with because I think that's early on, we we understand it now, but when, when we saw the boss, we were like, why not is that? So, yeah, if but, but if we're saying that again, I'm not, now we understand it. And as I've already said, we're not Sorry. saying that's not the future, but in the next six, 12 months, you're telling me that like McDonald's are going to look at the boss and be like, oh my God, that's amazing. I want to work with Nick. That That's not going to happen. They're with Polygon. You could argue, okay, they're just there because of money. Or you could argue Polygon strategy early on was, we know how best tech, maybe doesn't win i'm not i'm not here to evaluate polygons tech i'm here to evaluate their commercial strategy And what i see is being very aggressive on going to market and getting lots of brands that then have that network effect that make it easier to onboard project their challenge now is to convert that into active millions of users generating loads of revenue and transactions on their protocol it's a different business model to where near have gone just keep building amazing tech and then Let's find a strategy where we're reacting to what Polygon and others are doing and being very aggressive on getting all these brands in. Let's now try and find the sort of green shoots where we can win and get that usage in. I, I think it's a huge challenge. And again, keep coming back to this word ecosystem. I think that's why all these mixed messages are coming about because you've got different messages talking to these kind of different pockets. but I don't know what the unified is near is, near is what versus the three pillars underneath that. Web2 onboarding, BOSS, NDC, but what is the main pillar? I've, I'm a bit lost on what that is now. I don't know if, I think that's the thing. If I was wearing a t-shirt near is, I don't know. Richard where yeah. people can
1: own their assets, something and power of governance, yeah, but you're right. Look, Ilya asked that actually at the East Denver house and nobody could say I was the only one that knew, which is weird. I felt weird being the only well, one. I was would like, say, oh, what was your answer? Oh, that's literally the, the near mission. A right. future where uh, users are in control of their assets, their data, and the power of governance. I think it's the line.
2: Which of those things do you feel is unique to near? Because the first thing is definitely 3 the governance piece, maybe.
1: NIR has a problem. You know, when you can see the future, but if you say it, you change the future. It sounds like a self fulfilling prophecy, but backwards. You sound like
2: yeah. so man. You sound like you got super.
1: Oh, <laughs> there's some crazy shit going on in Australia. I'm not going to confirm or deny, but. You got to come here to understand, okay? We had too many vaccines. There are things that I keep seeing dropped between the lines that give me a level of understanding where I'm like, oh, shit, these guys are actually really fucking smart, but they're not saying it. You want to know what it is?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Through the alpha leaks from Aurora last week, through a question that they asked Shevchenko, he mentioned remote accounts. Remote accounts will enable anyone to engage with applications through the boss through NIR. So basically NIR would be like a universal UX layer that you can access any application on any blockchain. You could access Ethereum, like the, the transaction executes on NIR and then triggers Ethereum. Okay. When you have that though, the interesting thing is now you have one aggregator where you're collecting basically all of the data. Like when you look at users reputation, when you look at advertising, when you look at, it's very smart where I think Ilya is taking it. I mean, considering his background from Google TensorFlow and just like a shit ton of data and being able to aggregate data and users being able to control how they share it and etc. So that's one. And the other one was an interview that was done, uh, Kendall from proximity in some obscure Substack stack yeah. near week centered in the newsletter. But he said that, sure, boss. Right now it's frontends, but they've already started doing like data storage for Ethereum Layer Twos, and basically if you offload that from Ethereum Mainnet to Neo, it's like a forty percent cheaper. And then towards the end, when they ask him about the roadmap and like the vision for the future, he mentions data availability for Ethereum and Cosmos, and that's when I was like, the fuck is he talking about? Why have I never heard anyone talk about like data storage from layer two's Ethereums over to Near? So I think that the boss messaging was lukewarm and very hard to process because it's like a third of the package or it's a step towards a vision that they've never really illustrated. Why haven't they done it? Honestly, because if I was a layer two, I would tell everyone on Near to get fucked if I realize that they're slowly positioning themselves to be that like mother umbrella maybe because the technology is very ambitious and we may never achieve it there could be many reasons for doing it but yes i agree with you i guess that the message all up is we do have that problem with messaging because maybe the engineers or the visionaries that get it are not conveying it properly and the offering that we have right now on its own may not really make much sense yeah
0: that's really cool though really re- and really interesting to hear
1: I'll send you some shit, uh,
0: Hugo. You have to help us uh, with this yeah. one. It, it, it's super cool. That, that does make sense. Like data is so powerful. But also, yeah, it, it's so hard to sell anything without a use case. And I think that's probably where the job of selling boss is so tough because it, it's a bit abstract. It's, but yeah, with, with those kind of bits tagged on,
2: yeah, that's exciting. But yeah, it, it comes back to who we're talking to here because like you said, you found it on some Substack. So I'll give you an analogy. So early on, I worked in tech marketing and there was a company called Brocade you've probably never heard of. And one of Brocade's biggest challenges was their tech was amazing, but no one knew who they were. And what they didn't realize is that probably Brocade's tech was in most data centers of all the Fortune 500 companies in the world. And that was it. You don't need to talk about the tech. You don't need to talk about all these use cases. It's that classic marketing of company X uses Y. And and that was it. It was that simple to solve initially some of the sort of like inbound lead gen for the sales team because all of a sudden you put this ad campaign out here because people are like, holy shit. I didn't realize this bank was running on their infrastructure. I had no idea. So I think that, that that for me is also part of the challenge. At the moment, when there's all these new sort of products and ideas and amazing tech stuff as a non technical person on this call being spun off, that's how my brain is thinking. Okay, great. How do I translate this to the potential customers I want to take it to and who are they? So I think this comes back to, again, we all agree that we're trying to solve some pretty massive problems here, but right now, let's in the next 12, 18 months to keep the lights on. What are those use cases? Who are those customers and how do we get them on board to then enable this to all keep happening for the engineers to keep hacking? So I think that's one of the, and again, the good thing is this isn't a near problem. We speak to any L1, L2, maybe not L1, but L2s, this is the classic. Challenge they've all got and they flip flop around their messaging the whole time. So I think that's also a positive thing that this is not unique to near You see this from a lot of the ecosystem. They just don't know who they are, and every quarter you check in with them and they're like, "Oh, they've changed," which tells me that there is this huge identity crisis in Web three at the moment.
1: 100 Ethereum's biggest advantage is that they've got very little block space. The analogy that I sometimes give: it's like, hey, you've got a cinema for twelve people. Or you've got a stadium for a hundred thousand people selling out is not the same in the small one than the big one. And that's the problem that we have in the modern blockchain ones that now there's like way more capacity than things to do. But just really briefly, because I do have some specific questions about some of your games that may help us put some more context. Twofold first one is in the next three to six to 12 months. I know that you're in private beta release now. How do you expect that rollout to go ahead and maybe a couple of scenarios, conservative, optimistic, like how many conversions, users, transactions do you think could have? And second question, so you can start thinking about it would be, if we were to do a similar analysis, super speculative, I know, but from all these web 2.5 partnerships that the foundation has signed, do we think that once they hit mainnet, And if they have a reasonable level of success, like where could we be in 12 months time? Because I don't want to preempt the question, but I've always thought that if we could shake away the perception of Nier being a ghost chain, we just need a couple more wins to enter like a new face of potentially developers looking at it more differently. So yeah, I'm curious to see where you see that, how feasible would be to enter into that stride. Cool. Yeah. On the rollout
0: for our games. So... We're up to about a 40% rollout at the moment. So what we are going to do, we're not going to press the green button and go for it. But now we've got, we've got enough data in that we can really look at this and then really work on our churns and our funnels to make sure that these Web2 users actually stick around for longer and they become Web3 users. And then along with that, that's when the NFTs come in. And in time, because we did a token round, the token. So yeah, don't want to shoot our shot and go all out and then not have any kind of leverage to work work on the Web3 part. So 40% at the moment will probably stay similar for a couple of months as we look through all the data and then version two of the SDK will come out
2: and rewards app along with more
0: games and NFTs as well.
2: And you know, I think that the continued growth is going to come from obviously games that we continue to make or co-dev with partners. Two, as we broaden beyond gaming, like IPs as well, so partnering with core entertainment companies, sports brands, as you start to see this evolution of, hopefully you get a sense on this call, we're way more than just a gaming project, as you start to see these other things that we're going to start doing, that we're, because really we're talking about gamification that we're very good at and we can apply that to different verticals. So I think that's going to be key. And then the second part of your question is, yeah, that would turbocharge our growth. If there are now slice the barons doing, for example, or like the guys that dropped as some of these projects start coming online. If we can have a framework for how these people start moving around and we don't act or web two about it behind our own wall gardens, that definitely is going to turbocharge like all of our growth because we're bringing in lo- lots of users. So I think, yeah, we're all, the foundation signed some amazing partnerships. We're just all waiting for not just Play Ember, There's, I think I said earlier, like 18 different loyalty ones, we're all waiting for them to start coming online and, and bringing in all these users. So I think that we're relying less on because we can't control that as a business, as Play Ember, but we can control, yeah, like making games, code dev finding IPs to work with and building our own ecosystem. So that's really where our focus is at the moment. And then constantly talking to other projects, other founders on how we can join their ecosystem or vice versa.
1: Actually, I love that because I remember when Sweatcoin came out, that was something that the community members, the GM tribe, my friends, but everyone was asking the same thing and they were like, oh great, we got 10 million users and do we benefit much from this? I think that would be the, what's it called? The Golden Solution Go- to find goose. a way
0: to, huh? Golden Goose, is that a say? Or I made that up?
1: golden is definitely good. There's an adjective there that we're missing, but yeah, the Holy Grail. I don't know what the fuck I was trying to say before, but has there been any early brainstorming on how that might look? Because as you were mentioning, I was thinking Mm -hmm. of potentially adding like a subtle layer of near social at the back. Like maybe if users could have a profile within the app that is actually that shared database and ideally as the profile gets richer over time we can have more targeted offers to them or something along those lines.
0: Without giving too much away with our NFTs, it will be more of a, yeah, you're social and that's when your current kind of wallets can be linked. And that's where it will connect all a bit more. But yeah, yeah I think that's the stuff that we're really up
2: for. There's so many use cases of blockchain technology and what we're doing. So here on the data analytics side, it's about fusing together what's happening on chain with what we're seeing from a web two context. And that powers everything we're gonna be dropping. It powers our ability to serve better content to you, whether that's a game or non-gaming content, better offers that mean something to you rather than just random random stuff. To connect with people that are more like you, that play things or engage with things that, that you do. And we need both data sets to be able to do that. And NFTs are a key part of the how we enable that, right? It's making sure that our players understand why this thing is here why they need it that would then power this sort of enhanced data story so yeah having an nft system that again the word dynamic is thrown around a lot but i think it's dynamic but at a game play game design level is really important because that's what we've just been quietly testing about everything we can have all these ideas but if our players don't use it or see the value in it what's the point And it's just a waste of resource. So there's a lot of that going on behind the scenes that people don't see, but it's the failing 99% of the time that is getting us this sort of these 1% gains. So we definitely haven't like cracked it by any means. And we have to, it's probably the hardest thing about this journey versus pure web two is the space is shifting so quickly that we're having to respond to. So if you think about our audience, the stuff that they may be reading on the news on a regular basis. Might be changing their opinions of some of the things that last week were working. This week don't work because they've just seen something on CNN or Reddit or something like that. Okay, uh, NFTs good this week or are they bad? I don't know. A token's good this week, crypto good this week. So I think that's the other thing about we have to always just be really reactive and just assume that what worked last week won't work this week. That is a lot of fun.
1: Just to confirm, on the data side, I know that Hugo is not giving away. Any more than dynamic nfts, there's two things that come to mind, others that pique my interest. first would be the privacy side of things, how it compares to web two, whether users would have more power over the data portability, they choose what to share, etc. But well, the second one is around the idea of having that data commons or that shared layer, namely all the data that Play Amber captures is not within a closed wall or a closed garden, but anyone else in the ecosystem can actually leverage that and find that synergy. And to me, that's super important because I would have thought that'd be the default in Web3, but I was very surprised at least the very first versions of Tasks, all the data being labeled was actually private data. It belonged to the people that paid to label the data set. Here was me thinking that we had the large labeled data set and that we were creating this AI juggernaut. And we may well be in the future, but these early data sets were all private. So yeah, I'm curious to think how you guys think about that.
2: Yeah, I could take it an ideological level because remember when GDPR came out and it was a similar idealistic sentiment. Yeah, if consumers want to own their data, fuck the system. And there were all these businesses raising off the premise of this because their key assumption was that people really care about the ownership of data. And the extreme case is obviously Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And look what happened. This year, a week later, people were like, I can still use Facebook. Okay, fine. This idea of ownership went away. On our side, we're between, we're between a walled garden and a green field. We've got the walled garden and the sort of legal frameworks that govern the storage around Web2 data that we can't just suddenly put on chain because we're going to get sued. And we've been spending a lot and talking to lawyers a lot about this. Because, so one, one example of practical use cases legally, are we allowed to tie a, let's say, a Google ID that powers our mobile games, where you sign with Google, to a wallet address? As soon as we do that, are we then breaching data laws in Europe or in California? So there isn't a standard answer right now because it actually really depends on what country or indeed state you're in around legalities, around putting these two these two data sets together, and then to your question, what is private here that You can make public on web three. So the general guidance at the moment is what's private in web two cannot be made public, which is then obviously the appeal of what we're doing in web three, because it's a lot harder to identify UAVB now in web two, because of some privacy changes that Apple and Google have made versus in web three, there's a lot more that we can learn about you that, again, is publicly available, which is a great exciting thing for me about blockchain technology and monetization in in web three. This is a big debate in terms of the levels of how much people care. So if we go back to earlier conversation, people that have been here since the start really care about ownership and it's the key thing that people campaign on versus I would argue our users are in the same bucket of all the failed startups from GDPR. I don't believe that fundamental behavior has changed around the ownership and monetization of my data. I think what they care about is what I get from it. That's what is most important to them. So I think for us, that's who we're that's who we're building for, and what we never do is we're never trying to trick people. There's always very clear legal wording around terminology about what they are signing up for, because again, we have the utmost respect for our players and new players. But the main answer to your question is just an ongoing legal discussion, and also our analytics team around how this works. But what we are, but what our ambition is for this project, as I said at the start, is. We want to actually start being very, and we are being very open about what we are showing and triggering on-chain in terms of not just transactions, but what's happening in-game. That we want to be super open about because we've never hidden that in Web2. It's just quite hard for you to see that unless you've got a license to this tool and you can see it. We have no problem sharing that because everything we're doing in Web2 is perfectly legitimate. It's just Web3 enables us to do that from a position of strength. I know it's not very sexy, but it's a really important point, I think, certainly in our business model that. People can dive in and actually start seeing on chain, all the different events that are being fired in game that then ultimately will drive all these transactions and players. So that's why this kind of data analytics blockchain analytics piece is really interesting for us at a transparency level and a a monetization level. But on the privacy side, that's why despite having a law degree, we've got people a lot smarter than us advising us on that. I wish I'd have paid way more attention on, I've actually done some subjects that weren't like criminology or IP law didn't
1: exist back in the day. We're basically making it up as we
2: go. Don't be fooled. These
1: lawyers don't really know that much. They're just charging a shit ton of money to talk to ChatGPT.
2: That is true. He's our lawyer, even human
0: or It's just ChatGPT. Uh, I think one thing as well that Web3 allows us to do is like a bit more of a sliding scale of your privacy or your ownership or what you want to be yours. Web2 is very custodial. You're, you don't really have any say. Whereas this allows us to, okay, if you're A Web2 user that creates a wallet and actually what you care about is more just having a a cool thing on your avatar and you've been playing for ages. So that's what you're in there for. That's fine. You can keep it it in, but also having that sliding scale of, okay, I can actually make this non-custodial, own this, sell it on a marketplace and own everything. So I think that's a really cool thing with three.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Okay. I've got a couple of questions. Some of them were community crowdsourced and some I blended together. Are you ready? The first one is around Bitcoin cards. Can you tell us a little bit more about Bitcoin cards? How does it work and how does it integrate with crypto? Or I guess try to give some examples of that. A, gamification, which I always find super fascinating, but also how you've been able to implement that gamification in the crypto context and whether Web3 yeah. gives
0: you an edge, Bitcoin yeah. cards. Why can you tell me about it? Yeah, it's a, that's a cool one. So it's based off our number one card game with hypercards. So that was fully web two hypercards and we've been fascinated with Bitcoin or the lightning network quite a bit, especially in kind of Africa in the Philippines where I know you can pay your rent with Bitcoin and so yeah, we're super excited about that. And what we wanted to test there, it's like a big experiment really. Taking our hypercards game, which is profitable and then adding in this reward layer. So are people going to play longer if we give them Satoshis and that kind of loophole? Okay. Are they going to play for a lot longer because they're still earning and are they going to feel a bit more like a bit of a community? And we've started a, a small discord for it. The initial stats are that people are spending a lot of time in game and playing for a lot longer because they are being rewarded for it. Now, I think that's actually something we, we haven't really gone into, but at how like a high level, that's very Web3 in that we feel like currently in the Web2 model, people aren't being rewarded for their time. But with the kind of the Ember SDK with Bitcoin cards, we're actually giving back a bit to the user. And what it looks like the stats are showing is that people are really happy with that. And because of that, they're coming back back more and more
1: and with the ember sdk does that enable anyone to build games with your sdk or or how does it work sorry i think i missed that
0: yeah so effectively it's like a web 3 reward layer our sdk currently it's in the house it's effectively open it would work on unity where we're at currently is we just want to sort out all the bugs and stuff like that before we do go fully live and allow third party
2: It's not, to be clear, it's not, it's not like a Web3 game launcher or an SDK that suddenly you've got like an NFT marketplace, all that. There's some great tech that is a lot more Web3 for that. We did have a third-party game integrate because we just want to see how quickly and easy it was for them because again, we're aiming at our type of game. So it only takes an hour to integrate. But to Hugo's point, before we start opening up to third-party devs, there's some basic stuff we need in there like API reporting, we've got that list of things that we know from this isn't Web 2 or Web 3, but it's just you're going to integrate in a third-party monetization SDK, the stuff that you need into it. And also, as we've gone from where we started and raised versus where we are now, we've realized that actually we can do things a lot bigger and better. That so this partnership that we will announce in Q4, we want to bake some of that sort of like more Web 3, some of their more Web 3 elements actually into our SDK. So that's why it's better to fail on our own games first versus you as like a, a game studio, this is your game, your livelihood. We would hate to put something into your game that's not a full test is. We'd rather ruin our own game first than before we we rush and start opening this up to the world. But of course that is our of course that is our goal to make sure that this thing is available for the community and in, of course in time open sourced as well. But we're just not there yet. We don't wanna we we, we just don't want to make something available that's not ready.
1: Makes sense. To confirm. Bacon cards, web to game Ethereum SDK enables to bring that Web3 layer on top. I'm really curious. Do you foresee a time when more and more of the game would be fully on chain? And I think that's why Bitcoin Cards got my attention because I'm thinking maybe one of the subcategories around cards, collectibles, like simpler logic. Is that something that do you think it's possible, or are there any pros and cons
0: for doing so? That was one thing we really talked about initially because yeah, cards would obviously be great, great kind of NFT collectibles. At the time, I I think we just voted on, let's just get it out. Let's see how it goes. We can always add NFTs later. So I think that's something we'd love to look into. That's live on Google Play at the moment. And Google Play have actually been really good in that their rules are more black and white now that yes, you can have NFTs. So yeah, one thing that we perhaps wouldn't be able to do is launched this on iOS if we added NFTs. So just a kind of another thing for us to mull over. But yeah, I think we'd love to make it more on chain. I think for the users that are actually playing the game, uh, their big thing is about earning currency, so earning Satoshis and a really, we could see the stats there, they're playing for hours, watching lots of adverts and getting lots of sats what we're not sure on and we will do tests on whether actually is the collecting part more important to them or are these guys more play to earn like we'll play anything just give us a Stochi. or are they how would you test
1: it? it just give them like a super shit game and
0: yeah pretty much yeah we could do it that way or we could add in nfts nfts and see if it performs any better from our testing it does seem to be anything really out there that shouts web3 stats do seem to go down whereas if we say play for longer and get rewarded okay we're the game studio that actually gets back and you can maybe get an nft in time
2: or get a five dollars Amazon gift card they're the kind of things that oh yeah i like this and i think that that's then where it gets a bit more web 3 as we see people moving more into this crypto curious bucket That's where we want to develop our ecosystem and make sure we've got more like web three products and services that they can start identifying with. Versus yeah, the entry point is unashamedly at the moment, very web two, because that's what kind of gets them over the line to start with, with the sort of drop of our NFTs, that's going to be one of these first signals that starts telling us that, okay, they're playing Bitcoin card to a certain level. And we can see them off ramping Satoshi. That's one identifier. Okay. They're really understanding this NFT system that we designed. Okay. That's another signal. So then the system will start offering them again, like more Web 3 products and services to to keep pushing them down that path. This is if someone at the moment isn't really engaging with the Satoshi based games, we'll have to assume for now that it might be that's just not their thing, they don't understand it, they don't attach value to it and, or they're not engaging with our NFTs one, it's us doing a terrible design job, which is could be a scenario or two it's fine it's just their contribution to our ecosystem is just always going to be that top of funnel okay we're not putting anything in but they're generating revenue via watching ads that they get a percentage back through rewards but some of that goes back into the wider ecosystem so it doesn't really matter not everyone has to be crypto curious they can just be top of funnel and still have fun still get something out of it but still fund the ecosystem versus crypto curious obviously Are going to generate more revenue or how are they going to do that because what we're seeing early on is these more crypto cure will put money in but also they're generating higher ad revenue because of the types of ads in those games have higher ecpms than our top of funnel games because of those ad systems are making the assumption that okay these are kind of crypto people so let's serve them ads for binance for example rather than crispy cream donuts so It's a really interesting economic exercise that's going to be happening behind the scenes on how we start balancing our own economy based on the player profiles and what they do and don't do. And that's why it's great because in Web2, yes, there are some things that we know, but some of the stuff we're now talking about, we don't know and there is no rule book for. That's actually one of the reasons we did Bitcoin cards because we're just running lots of little experiments to kind of learn how, if we make things a bit more Web3, how people are behaving and responding. And even in, in in Discord, even though it's really small at the moment, it's been fascinating. A couple of people in private chats are very Web3 that have been a real help in terms of our thinking on how to make this even more Web3 and their expectations that it's just total opposite end of our Web2 players.
1: That's awesome. I think they call it a gateway drug? <laughs> Is that really? the thing? They say that in the UK yeah,
0: Yes, well, I quite like that.
1: So that like a little bit of weed, and then before you do it, you're snorting fentanyl or whatever way you do that. That's crazy. I, when I saw Ilya in Korea last year, so it would have been almost exactly one year ago, I shared with him my data thesis. I basically cornered him. I was like, hey, motherfucker, tell me the truth. Is this what you're doing? And he was like, oh, yeah, man, I guess that you could. He didn't really say that much, but I I pitched this idea and I was like, do you want to join the hackathon with me? So my idea, which by the way, I stand by it. I think it's pretty good. Maybe it's more data behind it was to create a Tinder like application Uh where you would basically show people say 100 pre-labeled cards and say, you do that with a group of people, say near con thousand people they all labeled themselves with a hundred cards and then i guess a couple of things one would be to invite hackers to use that data to create an experience for them when i was thinking hey just in case nobody takes it up you could do something like hey for lunch today we're going to sort people based on like interests or you could yeah. just create something out of that data that is now on chain and yeah
0: it's cool. Yeah. What would be on the cards? Just like completely random stuff and you'd start to submit. by the way.
1: Tinder is weird because it's a yes or a no. So you could basically have a basic proposition and you can agree or disagree. So it could be something like a horoscope card. Be like, Venus retrograde. I'm staying home. You know, fuck that. I'm not doing horoscope. <laughs> or it could be something like World Cup 2026. I'm so excited. Yeah, sports. Yes. No, like it may take some thinking. You could even put like memes, see whether people like them. Yeah, it definitely needs more thinking around the cards. You could have probably reverse engineer it, be like, Hey, what would be the desired outcomes, we send them on a boat, we send them to a bar, whatever, ju- bungee jumping, but
0: like yeah, just get really but, excited about. There's nothing to think about. I think that's quite a good thing that you'll get actually what the user is thinking rather than, oh, actually no, I should probably do that, Like when it's just quick and
2: yeah, I like it.
1: Yeah. And I think that at the time, maybe even now. I think of a type of applications that will be a basically a data collection applications, top of the funnel. They can be very simple, but the value is going to be on building up that social graph. And I'm thinking probably Play Ember would be in that category to some extent. Yeah. If we sort out yeah. the legals.
0: Yeah. 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 Agreed. Yeah. I think we're actually having a talk to someone later on today. He seems to be in that field, I'm really interested to, to hear what he thinks because yeah, I feel like there must be so much good stuff that can be done with a lot of data that we're bringing in. You don't want to not be using it. So yeah, it'll be a, be an interesting one.
1: Now, before we enter the final section, which is me telling you all my ideas and you telling me that you want to invest and build it for me, I want to learn more about cool cats. I'm super interested to unpack both what's happening there specifically, but also your approach to IP and how other partnerships could potentially look like. Maybe hypothetically, I've got some very valuable IP on near for you. Like Dear Misfits is up for grabs if, you, if we can come up with something cool.
2: Yeah,
0: sure. We're really excited about the cool cats bit. So that's more John's area.
2: IP for us is really interesting. I've done a lot of IP work before, and I think at the moment with the challenges around like distribution and bringing new audiences, there's no doubt that IP is a great way to do that. It's not this kind of Web3 thing. And we've done a lot in Web2, and we've had loads of conversations in Web3 with people that have got like PFP collections or people that feel they've m- built their own brand. And the way we approach it is really who is your target audience? Because I think if your target audience are like PFP collect. Like their game is PFP collecting. Do they even want to play a game? I would argue no. And there's, you can just jump on crypto Twitter and see this debate every day. Like Yuga Labs is an example. Do the sort of Yuga Labs holders even want to play a game versus actually a really short dopamine hit that enables them to win something? So we've had loads of conversations, and our approach has been okay, if you want to extend your IP to a Web2 audience through a mobile game, that's where we can potentially really help you. But as we've covered on this podcast, there's a risk management exercise for us and also you in this, because the Web2 audience aren't going to know what this thing is that you've got without all the context of being in your Discord, having an or being part of the community. So what we do is we do some marketability testing of your character in a game very quietly to see if the Web2 audience know what that is. So really, that's where, that's where the Cool Cats opportunity came from, through just a partner studio that are building the game. And we managed to work with them to basically be the publisher for that game when it's launched kind of Q2, Q3 next year. But I think cool cats are a great example of this Web2 audience in terms of you think Hello Kitty, the second biggest IP of all time. Most people know what a cat is. It's not like I have to explain what a cat is. It's the same concept with a cool cat. You see a cool cat and okay, I don't know it's a cool cat, but I know it's a cat. Okay, great. It's really going to come down to what that cat is doing in a match tree game and that game being really cool. That's the focus is building like, amazing games that people want to play and that IP is just the kicker. So if you think about the recur news that happened and I'm sure you've seen what happened to recur and the reason I'm talking about that is, okay, we can figure out why you're not happy about that. But again, I think that's, an, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but there is 50 million two years ago. So they've been burning 2 million a month, but there's loads of great IP on there. And from the conversations we've been having is, I think for these Web2 IP holders, I think that's what I took away from Rico is, it's not that Web2 hold, IP holders don't want to be in Web3. It's just, you still need that thing that distributes and makes your IP really fun to people engage with. And perhaps what Rico were doing in purely NFT sales without a thing to attach it to and give it value is maybe one of the reasons why they made that announcement. I don't know. But that's really the direction we're going in, which is fusing together amazing content and giving an IP real stickiness that then gives you momentum to fuel a digital collectible series versus just doing a game purely for Web3 holders that bar just playing to get a a really rare NFT or win some near or something like that. They don't really see the use case. So yeah, we are actively looking for more partnerships in that space, both Web2 IPs, brand entertainment, and we'll continue to talk to Web3 PFP collections where we believe there is a good fit in their art style with this sort of mass Web2 audience that we've got a really good idea for a game for.
1: Just really briefly, looking at the Recore website, Twitter both, and they're based in Miami, so I think we know what went wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a real shame because they, they partnered with Near, so... Three four months ago, there was a big integration with NIR and Few and Bar, and a lot of their great IP was on Few and Bar. Yeah, if anyone at the foundation is looking for a new home for all of that amazing IP, we'd uh, we'd love to talk to you.
1: We do have some downloads from Switzerland, but I'll send some DMs as well. We
2: yeah, that'd be great. We'll
1: make sure we don't have any orphan IP. Hugo, I think that you wanted to to chime in as well.
0: No, really, just to say that we're really excited about that, and we really feel like that's. In our wheelhouse, back to our day job, if you will, just making great games, casual games, where we can add these IPs into, really bring more eyes into Web three, because I think that's what we boil down to at the core, bringing people in.
1: I really admire the data driven approach. It's hard to argue against it, which makes me feel uncomfortable almost. I'm going to identify three possible scenarios. We've got using PFPs. Building games for the existing Web3 audience. You've got using the PFPs for a Web2 audience. So, from Web2 to Web3, which is what are you doing with Cool Cuts now? And then you've got using a Web2 IP for a Web3 game. I'm wondering how much of the Cool Cuts decision now is you guys just playing to your strengths and why reinvent the wheel? As you say, risk management, sure, you could make it work, but this is what we know what to do and what we do well or whether there may be other forces at play that means that at least for the foreseeable future things are more likely to go in a specific
2: direction those kind of decisions aren't really done to us right it's the ip holder or the brand in terms of what their goals are so if you look at pudgy penguins as the extreme example they're hacking web2 growth by obviously like Toys at the moment, it's it's like Build-A-Bear in Web2. You buy the toy, you scan it, you automatically create a wallet, you go on chain, you create traits. there's games. I know two or three other collections are looking at that and that's a very well-established Web2 business model. If you Google Build-A-Bear, for example, they've been doing that for years. I'm surprised they didn't make that leap into digital collectibles. But really, that's the IP holder's decision on which of those three buckets they want to sit in and why they want to do that. The reason you might stay in bucket one is because you've done an NFT collection. In your lore is this story about how you start fusing those assets together. Maybe you've done a second airdrop, a third airdrop, and ultimately you don't need a game in our sense. You need a Web3 gamification system that starts a mass burn of these traits and NFTs. In the hope that it's going to start boosting draw price and return value to holders i think there's always going to be that based on the number of like drops that nft collection done i think that's always going to exist and that's really not where our core business is but we can definitely help design that's gamification we're very good at designing games i think the second bucket again where you've seen like cool cats make they announced three games A decision, and obviously they have Animoca as an investor who on the one hand are one of the leaders in Web3 and have got a huge portfolio of gaming. I think when they communicated that announcement and before that, they, they really want to start building their IP, their cats in different avenues, and they identify gaming as a very strong channel, extend their IP to this Web2 audience. But I think you're going to see, I've seen murmurs in other Discord. For me, I think that's where gaming is smart. I think you need much more stickier, longer content for audience to engage with. If you look at these big Web2 brands, they're on YouTube, on Netflix, streaming channels, as well as the sort of merchandise that all goes with it. the sort of main driver. And the reason people are always engaging is digital content in some ball. And I can't remember what the third one was, AVB. It was Web3 And it doesn't Payton, matter. Web2. But yeah, Sumble I, two but to I Web3. think... But i think not everyone can make that leap i think some brands right now are and they're that i think doing what Luca's done is incredible and i think to copy that would be a mistake because again he if you look at lucas background you know he's got a track record for doing what he's doing and i don't think everyone is going to be pudgy and i think that's a mistake if you try and be pudgy so i think it's just as you're asking us about play ember it's like what's important for your for your business your holders your collection what do they want and Finding that, that middle ground, and if it's a if it's an amazing mobile game with a digital collectible layer, then you know that's definitely something that we're experimenting in and can help. Hugo, well uh, No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't add much to that.
1: That was pretty comprehensive. I'd never thought about it before this podcast, but I think Web three PFP staying within Web three it's a very incestuous world. Like even myself, like when I burst my bubble. I'm to go spend time with the indie hackers or the AI people or just not crypto. It feels weird. So I do wonder how much potential we may be living on the table just because we're not really thinking outside the bubble, outside the box. I also think that there's probably an element there around it's easier to do the IP on Web2 because we don't have any constraints around the technology it'd be hard to create a really good Web3 product with an existing Web2 IP. Cause as you said, like you've got something really solid going into really shaky ground that may not work. So I, I do wonder whether that distribution may change in the future as Web3 matures. Now there is one that both John and Ilya tweeted recently. This game entered my radar this morning, and I thought there would be no one better to ask than both of you. What can you tell me about Crystals of Naramon?
2: I, I think so. Again, Aki's a great example of what I love about Web3 just founders yeah. just supporting each other. He's been incredibly helpful, really, on everything. And I love the way that he thinks that he's building his company. I'm surprised he's under the radar because I'm looking at some of these big Web three games and what he's built and how he thinks about distribution and the team he's got, and I, I can't believe that it, he's not on the radar of like Spike or Bryson or some of these big Web three creators. Because for me, he's if we think about the game on near, he's the one that I think that not only near but as a okay like a game potentially with a token that actually can sustain itself, a proper game. Yeah, there's not a lot of them. And I would love to see him spotlighted way more within within Nier. Maybe just partly because he's been building very quietly and there's not enough gameplay to do the classic sort of Web3 hype machine. But I'm lucky enough to know some of the stuff he's got planning, some of the partnerships he's got, some of the investors that he's got. And I'm really excited about his project because some of the questions you're asking us about a proper living on-chain Web3 game. That's yeah, what he's. That's what he's building, and he can probably go as deep about the sort of legal compliant KYC token side as he can the game itself. So, if you can have, if you have him on as a guest,
1: I am no Joe Rogan, but I will a hundred percent have him on the podcast, and at least yes. a two or three people will hear about him. That'd be great.
2: <laughs> he's, but honestly, he's he's great. I think I'm really excited for him and i know he's dropped some of his alpha in a bunch of the the sort of near telegram groups i think yesterday and over the weekend i'd encourage people just to support him and give him some airtime. yeah
0: absolutely it looks super cool and can't wait to play it i think he's got tons on his wait list as well so it's great to see that people uh,
1: i'm pretty sure that somebody's going to leave a comment like oh these guys have been edging us for two hours (laughs) if you had to summarize the game in a couple of lines because i think that somebody referred to it as like a web web 3 diablo or that kind of mprg whatever
0: yeah it's a rpg all the gameplay that i've seen is through through kind of tunnel systems like dungeons yeah it looks super cool i think everything to be honest i haven't spoken with for a fair bit but everything on chain all the like the potions you can get the power-ups the weapons I'm going off the gameplay videos, to be honest, but they look very cool.
1: Okay. We're getting towards the end. I'm very respectful of your time. Are you guys going to near APAC or near con? Near con, I definitely will be.
0: I think near APAC, neither of us will be.
1: Fair enough. I guess from the London to Lisbon, it's like, what a one hour flight.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Much easier than near APAC.
1: For sure. For sure. I'm fucked it away from Australia. So <laughs> I'm going to both. That's awesome. Are you preparing like any special announcements, any, because I know there was a gaming arcade last year, which was cool.
0: Yeah, I think what we'll do is probably a stall with NFT giveaways, something around that and yeah, just have a fun stall. By then we should have NFTs out and a lot more stuff for the Web3 crowd to get stuck into.
1: Awesome. You've shared a lot of information around the processes, how you assess risks, data analytics. Do you have any advice for potentially Web2 players or game makers wanting to come into Web3?
0: Yeah, tough one. I think sticking to what you're best at. So I think originally maybe when we made the switch to Web3, we went very heavy on infrastructure. And I think we're a better place for it now, perhaps. But I think actually when it gets back to what are we good at, Let's not try and appease people. or we'll go super web three just for the sake of it. what do our users want? So I think that's, that would be my, my kind of little bit. So if web two studios were coming over, concentrate on making a really great game. Cause I think if you do that, the rest will follow.
2: Yeah. I think it depends on the category of game. I think to build a fully on chain web three oh. game, don't underestimate the additional expertise and support you're going to need, especially on the tokenomic side. It is like game design, but I would go and fish around the fintech pool. I think they're slightly different instruments to design and also don't underestimate the capital that you're going to need. So it's like trying to raise to build a web two RPG game or triple A game. You need to raise a significant amount of money because you absolutely cannot rely on selling a thousand, 5,000 NFTs to give you enough runway to build a game for two, three years. And then I think for this sort of web two crowd and when you're asking about events, I think actually that's mainly our, 50% of our focus is going to Web2 gaming events, because on the one hand, that's where the studios are. They're not at these Web3 events. And certainly our players aren't, obviously would be a near con, but our players are, they actually go to events, they're on TikTok, they're on YouTube. But for the Web2 studios, we've learned this the hard way, you can't just suddenly make a web three game so this is you guys and stick to your strengths and there's no substitute for making a great game web three isn't a get out of jail free card for making a shit game you still got to make a really good game but i think really do your homework on yeah who the best partner is to help you add that web three layer because it's not just as simple as adding a blockchain there's some other help and services you're going to need and i think this is an area that is is not settling in Web three. In Web two, there are publishers that can help you with this that provide you all kinds of publishing services, tech, creative services. In Web three, I think that's one of the hard things for a lot of our network. They don't know where to go because they also need some publishing services to help in terms of distribution, some technical support to integrate the game, discussion around token NFTs, both one other. So I think yeah, for Web two studios, that's always what we advise them is look, just stick to your day job and just. Join some of these communities and actually get a feel for the tech, the developers on there, and try and find some people that could help you rather than just jumping in. Because if you do that, your chances of success are going to be pretty small.
1: Such a great advice. The biggest challenge we have in Web3 is to get rid of that notion that it's easy money. You stick a few labels in, hashtag crypto boss lady, whatever, and it's all Lambo money. It's as hard as building a normal product in web two, plus all the no, no, knows of technology changing all the time. And yeah, there's a lot there. Do you guys think that, by the way, I think the title of the podcast is going to be just because it's web three, it can't be a shit game. That was a good line. Maybe there's some others there, but do you guys think that you'll reach a point where whatever you're in a yacht of the Amalfi coast. And you say, mischief Managed, we're going to go down a more exploratory, artsy path. Maybe the business pressures or constraints are less present and you can indulge more fully on chain. Or what would you do if you didn't have to pay your staff and worry about investors?
2: But I think I'd be on that yacht. Not doing very much at all, to be honest. Yes. I think I'd be worrying about solving Web3 gaming. Yeah. I think I'm on the old. All I can say is this, one, don't rule out seeing right. a more, a more sort of recognizable Web3 game from Ember because we've been thinking about this a lot. It's actually where we started. You mentioned earlier about Solana. Originally, that's where we started. We were trying to design this idle play-to-earn game on Solana. That's how this all kind of started. Actually, don't rule that out for us. We're always thinking about that a lot, about, okay, we've got core products. We've got this roadmap like what else could fit into our ecosystem. And we're always looking at Web3 games and that's our core expertise, making games. And we talk a lot with other founders from Web3 games about what they're learning, failing, et cetera. So I wouldn't rule out seeing from us at some point a game where you're like, oh, this is cool. And hopefully the reaction is, oh shit, it's from Ember. I didn't think they did that stuff. This is actually a really cool game that I, I would play. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely don't rule that. Definitely don't rule that out from us at all. Like we are really interested about fully on chain games, but there's a handful of people that are dropping games now. And I think bar maybe a couple of exceptions, most of them raised like 20, 30, 40 million because this is a serious tech and game undertaking. We're looking at a slightly different angle for something that's more in our game genre, but definitely that's something that lives fully on chain and exciting and a bit different from what we've done.
1: I would never underestimate Play Ember. And I want to reassure you, you would also never be alone in that yacht. Yes.
2: It, it's well, I'll be one. there
1: with my selfie stick doing
2: my YouTube videos. It's more likely to be a little inflatable in, in a paddling pool in Hugo's garden to the yeah. yacht. I think that's more realistic. It is what it is. Yeah. And that's actually going to be our activation for NIRCON. It's not a stand. It's just this little paddling pool with me and Hugo in little play ember onesies, just like fishing out plastic ducks. That's the version of our Lambo. Oh, yeah, it comes hooked up, and underneath is a QR code that you scan, and you get your NFTs. It's, it's going to be amazing. Well, it's, it's not a bad idea, actually. Yeah. yeah,
0: You finally
1: gave us some alpha. I love it. We're <laughs> going <laughs> to make it happen <laughs> now. Problem. Now, here you go. You had a very unique and distinct reaction to John. Looking at your facial gestures, I think that you were indeed thinking about developing something, as
0: opposed to just yeah. That does sound great. Yeah, I think maybe just the game design side. I'd love to. Cape on something really big, like a massively multiplier mm-hmm. on my game and really go for it. I think we know where our kind of expertise is at this moment, but I'd I'd love to take a bracket, something bigger at some point.
1: That's awesome. And I was actually wondering, you started in Solana and then came to Nier. I thought it was the other way around.
0: To be honest, we hardly started. So we, we started building the game. So it's like a WebGL build on Unity. It's kind of like an idle, idle looting game. And we actually had two, two products at that time. So we had this kind of web three looting game that had left our dev studio, showed it to a couple of VCs. And at the same time, we also showed this web two to web three onboarding pitch, which was effectively where we are now using our mobile games, making it more rewarding for the user. And we like our games where we AB test, we did a few pictures and to be honest, not many people were interested in the fully web three game, but this went to, okay, actually bringing users over. They were like, oh yeah, that one, we want that one. So we doubled down there, but yeah, we'd love to go back, maybe do that looting game on there at some point. So the and chain was in Solana and the web two to web three was a near or? It, it was never even on Solana. So we like tech wise, we were building out Solana. Then we actually heard about near, we changed the looting back end to near and then really the mass onboarding bit really started to kick off. So that's on the, the bigger game is on the back burner for a bit.
1: Okay.
2: Interesting.
0: So.
1: Am um, I gonna put words in your mouth, say that Near is better than Solana or anything, but tech
2: wise. Yeah, it just started I off. I think that's what it's about the theme of this podcast, about relationships. It's not about tech. We knew some of the Magic Eden team from gaming times and we're looking at some of the the games on there, particularly some of the gamified idol staking, and we're like, oh that looks interesting. And at the time we didn't know anyone from from Near. where we just like reaching out, we didn't know anyone really in the ecosystem. So yeah, we didn't even get as far as anything being on. Or like On on Solana, it's just at the time it was like, okay, knew some folks there, let's start speaking at a game that kind of looked something like this, but better. Mm. And rather than just building it, we tried to raise the money for it. And at the same time, then one we were having these VC conversations, this whole onboarding thing was actually the bigger problem. So we took a step back and then started building this on-ramp piece. And at that point, luckily we came into contact with some of the kind of near UK team, we went to a few of their mm. London events. And who we are now. It's
1: actually crazy to me how much people write off the human element when you are working in a heavy engineering environment. I'm learning how to code, but I wouldn't say that I can really code much. And I've always had a hard time showing the value that I create just by, if I may say so myself, excelling on like the human element component but even now that I came back to Australia, I've met several people that invested in Nier in the ICO. And they're very active. They've got like startups here. They're running meetups and stuff. And just because I've never really met anyone on Nier in Australia, they've dropped off. So it's actually really exciting for them to meet someone that is very active and looking at getting things going. It's like a worst possible analogy. It's like a sleeper cell. You're like activating all these like dormant units in the ecosystem so yeah i'm uh, very happy to be able to give a platform to all the builders wherever they may be in the world and uh, happy to attend all these events like the energy in korea was insane the energy in vietnam i'm hoping it's the same or better do you guys attend uh, events in in london often
2: we've done london is we feel very away from it or london despite what the government say here is really not a crypto hub there are a few local events token 2049 here was nowhere near like it was. And is in, in Singapore, yeah. the Zebu team do a good job. There's quite a big event happening in yeah. October that we'll be yeah. speaking at and part of. So excited for that. But yeah, generally, obviously, all the events in Paris are a lot bigger. But yeah, I think all the big events are in Asia or, or the US. So we definitely feel out of it in the UK.
1: We feel out of it in the UK, Australia. It's like a mini version. It is what it is. We've got great hash brown and uh, fish and chips and now friends i know that we are over two hours and i'm really mindful of your time you've got a real business to run is there anything else you'd like to add plug shill this is the time are you on friend tech
2: no definitely on friend tech just no i think i think my last comment is i've seen a lot of chat about the upcoming elections and was waiting for some more heavy-hitting questions from the avb on these but i think from our side we've I think I saw a great post from Nate and MinBase, and it's like you said, we have enough on our plate at the moment, building things out. We try to actively contribute in welcoming groups where contribution is listened to rather than shouted down. Where we would like to contribute is what we said in terms of actually building out, even before you get to distribution of funds and ownership and decisions around that, we would love to contribute more heavily in our area of expertise, which is specifically within mobile games, how we could map out this sort of ecosystem, because it shouldn't be a play in the ecosystem. It's a near ecosystem about how we can support better in that area with the foundation, anyone else within near about building that out. Cause I think being honest at the moment, I think that is where we don't see enough thought, we see great projects being signed, a lot of thought and definitions of governance. We see this massive hole for like systems building. And that next layer down, I think is called the Transparency Commission, where a lot of the wording is around, again, funding, transparency around these processes. People that have got, I don't think there's any shortage within there, people that have got like huge technical expertise on Web3 and blockchain, but that needs to be coupled with deep vertical expertise in areas that we want to deploy in. So I think that's where again somewhere we would be very happy to contribute in terms of we're not going to claim to be as knowledgeable as some of the builders in there on the blockchain side however when it comes to mobile gaming and it, and your competition there is vcs like there is so as we've covered here so many different areas within like mobile gaming i think we can contribute quite heavily there to making sure that at least the even before he gets to the financials, like the type of game, the way it's designed, the audience actually makes sense. So I think we have some concerns that that area is being fast-tracked or not thought about it enough in favor of a lot of discussions around the concept of governance and distribution of funds. So a very long last thought there, but it's something that I would hate people to think that, oh yeah, those playing the guys don't care about the NDZ elections. We, we absolutely do. But it's this area that we actually care about the most and can't find an environment to talk about that because most of the environments are very much around funds, use of funds, who controls those funds.
1: I have as much time as I want, really. I can definitely keep going for a little bit. The reason why, first off, I did try to probe you. I was hinting at some of the clashes with the gaming DAO people, but I it didn't come up earlier in the conversation. And to be perfectly honest, the reason why I am... Much lighter mood, some may say, on this podcast is because we went pretty hard. I'd say pretty fucking hard, and I'm trying to swear less on the podcast with the Red Layer One guys, Joe Shard Dog. And within hours, we saw the impact. Even Ilya came on the chats, he gave his feedback. The community trustees reached out to me, the foundation reached out to Joe 48 hours later, maybe over the weekend. The foundation announces a new grassroots program. And to me, that's very meaningful because sidestepping the NDC is a very big message. At least to me, and I'm coming at it from a fatalist point of view. To me, it says, even if the NDC fails, we're here to give money. That shouldn't be a blocker. If you disagree with it politically or if it's done very poorly, it shouldn't be the reason to leave the ecosystem. Like, we're still building. That to me was reassuring. And by the way, hats off to whoever wrote that announcement from the foundation. Because you know what they did? They said if V1 succeeds, elections are successful, all the seats taken, no drama, 15 million a year going to the community treasury. But if it doesn't, they're dispersing money right now. So to me, that was a very good outcome, a very good sign. Most recently, I've also had RC Dow disaster elections nullified just not getting much progress there despite putting many hours and then i've had a meeting with the person from the foundation doing regional hubs i've got a template Fill in the information we're going to have conversations around potentially having an australia hub so it's coming to the realization that if you find the right channels we're very much all working towards the same goal we're trying not to get distracted and yeah being mindful that If we do have the opportunity to speak with someone such as yourselves, we're probably creating much more value by just showcasing what you do and ideally inspiring others than by repeating the things that, by the way, everyone is thinking. I don't know who is delusional or how much you're getting paid. What you and I think, everyone thinks, which is why the community reaction was so strong the last few days. What I do think that has come through this podcast, at least to me, I would vote for you guys. House of Merit, Advisors, Transparency Commission, take a peek. It doesn't really matter to me. Mostly around that operational excellence, how to balance the budget. You understand analytics setting KPIs for the ecosystem. It's a very professional way of thinking. I've always been concerned that when the money comes from a community treasury that seems to have unlimited money, people just stop thinking about these things that should be there that's the role of the ndc doesn't matter if you're saying gm and sending memes of cats shitting rainbows or whatever someone has to be thinking about how much money is in the treasury are we hitting our kpis are we attracting and retaining best talent i think that you've made a very strong case albeit indirectly and i really hope for the best
2: that's what we're doing everyone should be able to openly discuss it whether they're running or not everyone is entitled to an opinion and is entitled to how and where they decide to contribute. And I think it's okay that some people don't run, but decide to contribute actively in other areas. For us, the goal of coming on here was one, we've never shied away from what we're doing, we are well aware that we don't have a lot of documentation, maybe other projects, but we've always tried to talk very openly about our vision and what and how we're trying to do. But it's also just being respectful of the fact that we are a pre-seed company and the Web3 so, so we are a small team, 15 people max, and we are working flat out. And we've been honest here about that. We're failing more than we're winning at the moment. When we have time, like Hugo and I, and we always push the team to try and contribute to the various sort of like community forums and, and events. And yeah, behind the scenes, try and give as much time as we can to people that reach out and look at their decks and advice on fundraising is probably one of the main ones that people reach out on. And we just want everyone to succeed. That's the only ask is that I don't turn up in other people's groups and shit on you. At least have the decency to listen to this podcast and what we're doing. And then by all means, come at us. That's the only thing that we ask is for people just to be respectful. And it makes me sad that some people feel for whatever reason they they can't be respectful.
1: I had no idea that people were disrespectful or that there was animosity beyond some much minor clash with gaming DAO that you mentioned that is sad. I am extremely grateful to have you guys in the ecosystem. You are the teams that make me feel like near has a chance.
2: Yeah, we appreciate that. But honestly the amount of support we've had from behind the scenes, from people that maybe aren't the loudest in certain areas, but have been very helpful behind the scenes and are always there for us that we are really grateful for within within a near ecosystem. And again, I know they get a lot of black, but the foundation have been really supportive like Conrad and his blockchain success team and Vic, and Mark on the BD side, Robbie, just really helpful Like if we ever need anything, I can ping, and can connect us with the right people. So there is a lot of very positive things that are happening behind the scenes, some structured, some very organic as well, that I think we just need to keep building on and make available to everyone. Because I think that's half the challenge is certainly in gaming, people ping us and it's like, well, where do we go? Who do we talk to? there's not an obvious, certainly for mobile gaming, it's just like, there's not an obvious beacon. So I think that's something that we're talking to the foundation on is how can we help there basically help near become that go-to point within mobile gaming? Because we feel that's a very big niche, a billion dollar niche that they can excel in given the, the tech that they have. So
1: yeah, it's actually a challenge. I'm very mindful of not having the podcast be the near Foundation podcast. I've Absolutely. had several people on and I've got several others shortlisted that I think would be fantastic guests. Even like David Weinstein, he tweets like very deep and meaningful philosophical yeah. stuff. Yadira, dude, she's incredible. She pulls off these massive events. And I was actually going to have her at nearcon. We had the water features and she was busy dealing with other things. And Robbie, I met in Korea a couple months ago. We had a very good conversation around just like growth hacking. And it comes from that big tech background. There's just a lot of really good people there that once again, like I'm actually on the foundation side these days. And I do think that it's weird because the foundation has to market the products, which is either the technology itself or the partnerships that they bring on board. But to some extent, I feel like we also need to market the people. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that when you have such fast turnover in an organization. A lot of the community members were left not knowing who to reach. Literally the entire community team went. The only person left uh, was Treyas. The CMO was new. Like most teams had a turnover. I know from what I've seen, the business development team is pretty good and they're doing good work, but it's weird not knowing who they are or not knowing who to reach out to. So, yeah, I think that we definitely need to do a better job at giving them credit and letting other people know they're very approachable reach out to them making introductions same with pagoda pagoda got a bunch of new product managers including for boss for a near social for different verticals thank you for giving them some shout outs and i'll draw a name out of a hat to see who comes next yeah i want to do ayahuasca with david Weinstein. <laughs> you
2: know, definitely like G- galileo's corner or something at neocon and he can just go there and A big,
1: massive tent. Hugo, any parting thoughts? No, not really.
0: We're just, yeah, very happy kind of building this out. Lots of stuff to come from us. Stuff even more Web3. Yeah, and can't wait for six months down the line, three months down the line, where we're creating even more Web3 users. I'll DM you
1: the Amalfi Coast. That's a wrap.
0: Thanks. Thanks a lot. Cheers
1: that's the end of another episode as always i just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest you are amazing and i also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial medical or any other type of advice and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.